All right, do you guys want to see a magic trick, just real quick? No. Guys, it's so embarrassing, okay? I was in my early 20s still doing magic tricks. Anyway, it was what God used to build a relationship with Brian. The most important thing about that video and that story is uh, just I'm so humbled that God used me in the life of another person, and it, it never gets old. That's the most exciting thing to happen in your life is for God to use you to reach somebody else. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity over my life to, to lead several people to Christ, and it's one of the great honors of my life, but honestly... It's been a long time since I've done that. And one of the reasons we're launching the One Initiative, you can grab your book, is we are, this is an initiative about repentance in our church. And when, when I talk about repentance, you probably think, you know, I need to repent of some dark secret sin. I'm talking about repenting of our lack of reaching other people for Jesus. See, what happened is a couple years ago, we started an initiative called the Forward Initiative. And thank you, for those of you who are part of it, you gave generously. The Forward Initiative was about generous giving. The One Initiative is about missional living. The, the Forward Initiative got us our new home and hub, and we're hoping to be in there in December, and we'll give you more updates. And that was great, and that helped us go deeper and wider and grow stronger. And okay, the One Initiative is about missional living. Here's the whole thing about the One Initiative, and I'm gonna try to say this every week. Here's the goal. Because when we, when we had the Forward Initiative, we said, here's the goal, guys. We want you to meet with God have an experience. We want 100% of participation of everyone who calls Two Cities Church, you know, home to give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings. That was the Ford Initiative. There's no financial component to the One Initiative. Here's what we want. We want you to take personal risk to bring Christ to one relationship. We want you, we, we understand that the only way, I think this is true, whether you're talking about world missions or church planting or dad and mom leading their son or daughter to Christ, it happens the same way. You know you've gotten to the bottom of something when it applies everywhere. Here's how it happens every time, all the time. The gospel moves forward one relationship at a time and one risk, one gospel risk that I'm gonna take in that relationship that I don't know what's gonna happen. And we're asking you to do that with us. That's because here's what's happening, guys. And we are so grateful for how our church has grown. We're so grateful for all the new people that are coming around. But there are three types of new people who come to your church. Okay, just as I bring us all together on this. The first type of new person comes to your church because they left another church in your city. Okay? And that's happened to us. And that happens to a lot of other, other churches. People leave churches to come to your church instead. And, and that's, how one, that's one way the church grows. And praise God. And another way the church grows is, is people leave other cities because they move to Winston-Salem and, and then they, when they get to this city, they need a church in that city. So they move from another city, they come to your church. Guys, it's no accident that the fastest growing churches in the nation are often in the fastest growing cities in the nation. People are like, wow, that church is exploding in Charlotte. It's like Charlotte has 20,000 people moving there a month. It's like most of the churches that are growing in Charlotte are growing because people from California moved to Charlotte, they need a church. Guys, we, we're thankful that, that we've had people come from other churches and come from other cities. So people transfer from other churches, they transfer from other cities, but what we wanna to see to happen is people transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. Our goal, so we have a church goal and we have a goal for you. Here's our, I'll tell you them both. Our church goal is that in going forward in the future, over the next year and the years to come, we would see 10% of the growth in our church is conversion growth. It's people who do not know Jesus right now, who are not in a church, who, say they, who do not say they are a Christian, and a year from now, they're a Christian. We would love 10% of the people who come into our church to that to be their story. And we're so serious about it, guys, that we, we put this booklet together. If you see Carrie Wilson, she's on our staff, you just thank her. She did the heavy lifting for this entire book, okay? But if you'll grab this book for a second, okay? That, that book is gonna be your passport. Guys, we're on a journey together, guys. This is not a sermon series merely. We do four to eight sermon series a year. This is way more than a sermon series. This is an initiative. Would you, uh, we, I hope that your booklet is worn out by the end. I hope you take tons of sermon notes. I, I hope that you do all of the tools and helps that we put in there. I pray that you'll bring this back and put it in your Bible or get an electronic copy if that works more for you and, and you'll bring it to community group. And then the, 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 the more important thing actually is this little card because of what it represents, okay? Uh, this is your version of the card. I want you to write, you know, you don't have to do it on the service. You can do it when you go home, but we want you to write the name of just one person, just one, because if you try to reach everyone, you reach no one. Who's the one person who's far from God, close to you, who God's calling you to tell about Jesus? Because if you try to reach everybody, you reach nobody. Here's what we're, we want a culture where everybody, and this is what I'm hoping happens by the end. Everybody in our church who calls to City Church Home is always talking about their one. I was at a church recently and that's exactly the culture they had. And I, and I met one of the staff guys there and I found out that his son is getting his MBA at Wake. 
And I said, why isn't your son at, at, at Two Cities Church? We're connected. He goes, my son is my one. I realized, okay, this guy's trying to reach his son for Christ. And I was at another event and Pastor Dave was there and we met this guy there uh, and, and the guy says to Pastor Dave, I, and he points to someone on the other end of the table, he goes, I was his one. Could you imagine someone saying that to you in a year? They're sitting next to you, there's something, they're in your community group. I was her one. We are trying to have a culture where each person reaches one other person. We're so serious about this that next week we're gonna give you the same, you don't have to bring your card back. You put your card in your Bible, you put it in your, wherever you wanna put it. We're gonna give you another small card and next week we're gonna ask you to come up and put it on the stage in a bucket and say, God, I'm gonna do my best and trust you with the rest. And we really believe that this could be an initiative that transforms our church and transforms our city. So let's start with prayer. Lord, would you do it, Lord? We wanna put up the sail, you know, uh, but you've gotta send the spirit. You've gotta make it the wind come. Lord, we, wanna, we, want, we believe, I really genuinely believe from scripture that the only way the gospel goes forward is it goes forward one relationship at a time, one gospel risk at a time. Lord, would you just bring to mind, even right now, who's the one person for each person in this room who needs to be their one? Lord, would you use this series, would you use the book of Acts, which is the church at its birth, which is the church at its best, would you use the book of Acts to put steel in our spine and a spring in our step? And we would be so eager to live out this mission with you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, guys, I am a sucker for a good reality TV show, okay? I've seen all the episodes of Undercover Boss. You ever see that show before, right, where the guy's the CEO and he goes undercover and at the end he reveals, actually, I'm the boss and he rewards people and corrects others. And that's a great show. But my favorite reality TV show, which in both the Saturday night and the Sunday morning 9 a.m. service, like almost no one has ever seen. Who here has seen Extreme Makeover Weight Loss Edition? Put your hand in the air. There is like no one who's seen this show, guys. This show is so incredible, okay? This show is so incredible that I was telling my kids about it. I was like, hey, we need to watch just a little bit of it. We watched three episodes in a row. Okay, here's what happens. There's a guy named Chris Powell. He's an incredible guy. And very severely, morbidly obese people write to him. I'm talking about 350, 450 pounds, 500 pound people. They write to him and they say, basically, will you take me on? I can't help myself. I need to lose weight. And he chooses one person a year because of what he does is so comprehensive. And what he does is he always, tell me if this doesn't remind you of the gospel. He always meets them in the environment in which they're getting fat. So say, say there's Tony and Tony eats pizza. He goes, I'm gonna go to the pizza shop and I'm gonna catch Tony eating pizza. So he does this. So he, in fact, a lot of times he'll bring out the pizza and Tony sees him and immediately Tony cries. And then he says to Tony, Tony, I choose you. Tony cries. It's like, dude, I'm, I'm yes, get on the plane. We're leaving right now. He takes them to California where they go to the special institute and he puts them, they ha he, he has to kind of show them their sin. So he says, you gotta strip down to your underwear and you gotta stand on this freight scale, which is humiliating for them. It's a massive freight scale because they're so big, they've not, not been on a scale in forever. And he asks them what they think they weigh and they're always saying way less than what they really weigh because they've not weighed themselves. And he makes them stand on the scale and then at the end, he shows them how much they weigh. You're 432 pounds, how did you get like this? And they cry again. Well, he takes them back to his house and. While they've been gone for about a week, he has the whole house transformed. He puts a weight room in there, a working room. He gets rid of all of their food, all of their drink. He restocks their fridge. And he says, I'm living with you for three months, discipleship. He literally moves in and he sets quarterly goals. And on average, the average person that goes through this program with him loses half of their body weight in one year. They go from, imagine going from 400 pounds to 200 pounds in a year. They, get, they, they lose so much weight that they, part of what he gives them as a gift is skin removal surgery at the end. And at the very end, my favorite part of every episode, and I've seen every episode, okay, <laughs> is they have the big reveal. They invite family and friends. They show a big old, they show a picture of, they actually show the picture of them in their underwear back when they were really big. And then they walk out from behind the stage and it's the new version of them. And everybody goes crazy and everybody's crying. Why? Because we love life change. If you'll turn to Acts 9, I want you to see life change on display. That's more significant than any extreme makeover weight loss edition episode. 
we're talking about not external transformation, which is powerful. When you see someone lose 200 pounds, everything about them changes. But when a person meets Jesus Christ and is made into their disciple, it's an internal transformation. I actually believe that what we're gonna read today is the second most important event in the New Testament. Obviously, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first. It shows that it legitimizes his life, his ministry, and tells us that God was satisfied with his death on the cross. So the empty tomb is in a category of itself. I would say after the empty tomb, the conversion of the apostle Paul is, is the most important event maybe in all of human history. Because it was such a catalytic conversion. Paul's gonna go on to write 13 books of the Bible. He's going to go on to, uh, to, do, to do many missionary journeys and plant many churches, right? Because here's what you need to say about people, okay? At one level, we need to look around this room and go, everybody's equal in the sense of everybody's made in the image of God, and so they're equal in value, significance, dignity, and worth. But not everybody is equal in skill, intellect, ability, and how God might use them. I mean, think about this. This is to be true for a Christian or non-Christian. Like, think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? Do you know Arnold Schwarzenegger was Mr. Universe? Like, that, I would say that's pretty hard to do. Like, most of us struggle to get to the gym on a regular basis, okay? He's like, he's voted the most fit man in the world, okay? So that would be good enough. If he, if he just did that, we'd be like, well, life well lived. Then he goes on to become an actor, and he becomes, at the height of his career, the most sought-after male lead actor in the world, though he's doing movies in his second language. So if he did that, you go, well, that's pretty good. If you did one of those two things with your life, you'd be like, that was a very successful life. And then he goes on to be governor of California. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. The Apostle Paul is the Arnold Schwarzenegger of Christianity. There you go. <laughs> he is uniquely used by God. You'll be introduced to him here in verse one. Look here. In verse one, it says this, but Saul. Now, by the way, Saul and Paul, I'm gonna use interchangeably because Saul becomes Paul. I'm gonna just mostly call him Paul. But here's what I want you to know about Paul because the, the big idea for this first message is God can reach anybody and everybody needs Jesus. God can save anybody and everybody needs Jesus. And Paul actually tells you, hey guys, he said this later. He's like, guys, the reason God saved me is to actually show he could save anybody. Well, why? Because I, I wanna make a case for a minute that Paul is the most unlikely person to become a Christian. So maybe I want you to think in your life, who, who do you know that is literally like the most unlikely person to become a Christian? Why is Paul unlikely? First of all, he's wealthy. How do we know he's wealthy? His parents sent him to school in private school in Tarsus. That's wealth. He's a Roman citizen. That's wealth. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. That's wealth. Um, he's from a Pharisee family. That was wealth. He was a very, very wealthy guy. And a lot of times we look at somebody and if they have money, we think, well, they don't need Jesus. It's like, yes, they do. They don't think they need Jesus. He's not just wealthy, he's very, very smart. I just told you he went to school in Tarsus. It was one of the three best schools you know, in the nation or in, in the known world at the time. Uh, not only that, he was a Pharisee. And when, you, when we think Pharisee, we think like religious leader, okay? Think, I want, when, every time you read the word Pharisee, I want you to think of that culture, successful lawyer. Because that's what it was. It was somebody who understood the law. I mean, there was no difference between government and you know, church and state and all. It's like, no, no, I know the law very well and I know how to apply it to complex situations. And therefore I'm paid very well for that. That's what Paul was. So he's very smart, he's very wealthy. And then remember when he says he's a Pharisee of Pharisees? Whenever we hear Paul say that, he says that in Philippians three, he goes, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And you know what we think? We think that means he thinks he's saying, I'm the best Pharisee. That's not what he's saying. He was saying, guys, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm, I'm from a family of Pharisees. My dad was a Pharisee and his dad was a Pharisee and his dad's dad was a Pharisee. And so, okay, here's what I want you to just understand. When you think about Paul, he's the most unlikely person to ever be converted because he has three things going for you that makes it very hard for that person to come to Christ. He's wealthy, he's smart, he's from a family that believes differently than Christianity and has for a long time. But then look what he's doing. He's, he's living a sinful lifestyle. Look, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest, that's gonna be Caiaphas, and asked him for letters, he wants a hall pass, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wants to go, I mean, this guy's passionate. He wants to go and find Christians way up in Damascus. By the way, in what happens in chapter eight, this is interesting, in chapter eight in Acts is the first time where persecution moves from the leaders to every Christian's persecuted. So up until Stephen, it's like we, the, the apostles and, you know, and the church leaders, they're the ones that are persecuted. And then in chapter eight, they start to persecute everyone. And Paul leads the way in this. And he says, I need letters. So I need to go up to Damascus. And you can see how violent he is. Most commentators note, it's very interesting that he says, I want to go after men and women. There was kind of a rule back then, like leave 
the women alone. Like when it would come to persecution, when it come, it's like, leave the women alone. Go after the men. It's like, no, no, Paul was so angry. He, he's like, and this is what happens, by the way, when you give yourself over to sin. You know this, you've had like a night like this before. It's like, when you give yourself over to sin, like you become basically like an animal. And so Paul is, Paul is you know, I, I don't think it's hard to, um, I think Paul is, is at the height of his sinful activity. He is persecuting Christians. Here's, here's another thing I just wanna say that I think we need to understand. Paul is sincere about what he believes, but he is sincerely wrong. We, we live in a time where, where in our culture, everyone's like, well, if they're sincere, right? I mean, honey, if, 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 if our daughter is sincere in what she believes, as long as it makes her happy, as long as she really believes it, it's like, no, you can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. So here's what happens with Paul. So Paul, Paul, here's Paul. He's about to head to Damascus and his whole life is about to be changed. Look at verse three. Now, as he went on his way, so he's thinking this is gonna be another normal day for me. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So here's what we're gonna talk about for the rest of our time, conversion. I know that's like, that's a scary word today. That's like not a word that, we don't use that word. Like the only time we use the word convert is like, I need to, how do I go from Celsius to Fahrenheit? Convert that, you know? How do I go from inches, you know, to centimeters? Convert that. It's like, I'm traveling, convert my currency. I need to convert my currency. We don't use the word convert. I wanna just talk about what conversion is just for a minute. Conversion is not coercion. We need to say that to the world. We actually do not believe, this is unbelievably freeing for the Christian. We don't, and should put the world at ease. We do not believe faith can ever be forced. We don't believe that. It, this is why the Christian state, whatever that means, has never worked. Because conversion is a heart transformation, which leads to the second thing. Conversion is not being convinced. You can be convinced that Christianity is true and not be converted. Conversion is when all of you is give, you, when you give all of you to all that Christ is. Conversion, so your mind, will, and emotions. So it, conversion is not intellectually assenting to doctrine. That's just the mind. Conversion is not making an emotional, having an emotional moment, crying at camp. Like people, sometimes people are like, I'm a Christian because I had this really emotional experience when I was 12. It's like, I don't think so. Or, or, and then people, it's not, it's not just an act of the will. I decide. I will follow, I have decided to follow Jesus. It's like, it's actually all three. The mind, the heart, and the will has to come to Christ. And conversion is not changing religions. People do that all the time. Oh, I was, you know, I was uh, Muslim and, and, and now I'm Mormon. It's like, ah. conversion is not changing religions. Conversion is not leaving some religion to join Christianity as a religion. Conversion is, I now have a new relationship with Jesus Christ. I've been converted to him. So I wanna show you this. Here's what I wanna show you also. This is what makes this a little interesting. Paul's conversion is dramatic to say the least, okay? And so what I wanna do is I wanna talk about what is essential. When we look at Paul, I'm like, this is what's essential in every person who ever comes to Christ, not what is exceptional with Paul. Like, I don't think anyone here was knocked off their horse, heard an audible voice of the Lord and was blinded for three days. You know, that's not, that's not how we came to Christ. But actually all of the principles are the same which is this, here's the first principle of conversion. God meets you where you are in your sin. We have to tell people this, religion is clean your life up. Religion is our reach, the gospel is God's reach down to us. And I believe that God, and this is often the story of people's conversion, God reaches them at their lowest moment when they have completely given themselves over to sin. Paul is the persecutor, the blasphemer, he's about to go kill Christians and God is going to meet him right where he is. I heard one guy say, God, God is like a good fisherman. He cleans his fish after he catches them. When, when you come to Christ, it's, it, you don't clean yourself up before you come to Christ. That, that would be like cleaning yourself off before you jump in the shower. The point of the shower is to clean you. So the first thing that he does is he, he meets Paul where he is. Paul didn't see this coming. Paul was going his own way. The second thing he does is he gets Paul's attention. See, the problem is most of us are not thinking about God at all. And, and before we can ever come to Christ, we have to start to think about God. So he gets Paul's attention. Now, let me tell you how I, th I, there's three ways I see God get people attention, get people's attention today. There's probably more than three, but uh, the number one way I see God get people's attention is through a life event. Have you ever seen that? Like sometimes it's, unfortunately, sometimes it's a very tragic life event. It's like dad died 
my first marriage didn't work and it ended in divorce and my daughter was born with severe disabilities and sometimes there's a life event and God gets our attention to it. Sometimes the life event, by the way, is just I'm in a new season and stage of life that I was not ready for. So if you want to know, when's a great time to reach out to somebody to share Christ with them? Usually when they've entered a new season and stage of life that they weren't ready for, they they weren't ready for their marriage. They weren't ready to have this kid. They weren't ready to graduate college. By the way, this is interesting. The most likely time for a person who leaves church to come back to church is when they have their first kid. Because they grew up in the church and then they kind of were rebellious and then they dated that guy or that girl and then they got married and then they didn't have kids for many years and then they had kids and they're like, what are we going to do with my life? Oh my goodness, I better get, how am I going to raise my kids? The second thing God uses is somebody is really struggling with a sin that has overtaken their life. They are caught in some addiction and they don't know how to get out of it. This is why Alcoholics Anonymous and all of the anonymous programs, they're all the exact same. The first thing you have to do is admit that your life has become unmanageable and that you need a higher power. Because when you can't get yourself out of something, then you, for the first time in your life, you might look up. And the third thing God uses is good Bible teaching. Almost everybody's testimony that I've ever heard has they finally got in some environment. It could be a friend who did a Bible study with them. It could be a men's breakfast. It, who, it could be a podcast a friend shared with them. It could be a church they went to. And for the first time, they heard Bible teaching that made sense to them and spoke to their lives, and it woke them up. So here's Paul. God gets his attention, and, and it says a great light came. In fact, Paul tells this story. Paul's testimony is so important, it takes up 10% of the book of Acts. Because in chapter 9, we get it. But then in chapter 22 and in chapter 26, Paul shares it again. And so when he's sharing it somewhere else, he actually says, guys, the light was so bright, it was brighter than the sun shining in, in, in noonday. And so here's what, here's what I think. God gets our attention, and he hits the lights in our life. Now, sometimes God hits all the lights. Like in my life, I feel like that's what happened. I came to Christ over the course of like a two-week period of time where I went from like not caring about God, the Bible, the church, he- never thinking about heaven and hell, to being like a sold-out believer in two weeks. And it's like, but, but becoming a Christian is both a process and an event. So sometimes God hits all the lights. Sometimes he uses a dimmer switch. But you, all, you have to, the process is I have to learn that God made me on purpose for a purpose, I have to learn that I'm sinful by nature and choice. I have to learn that Christ lived and died and rose on my behalf. I have to learn that I need to respond in repentance and faith. Repentance and, faith. and that could, you could learn that in two minutes or two decades. So what happens with, with Paul is he has this dramatic moment, but I want, you to sh- I want to show you something. Look at verse four here. It says this, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When a person comes to Christ, what they realize is their sin has not been primarily horizontal in nature, but it's vertical in nature. They realize that their sin is not just against other people, but their sin is against God. Anybody can feel bad about how they live. That's normal. That's what it means to have a conscience. Everybody can admit that they fall short and they're not who they could be and they don't do what they should all the time and they're not the dad or the husband or the wife or the father or the mother, whatever, that they could be. It's something completely different to realize I've been sinning against Jesus Christ himself. This is what the Puritans used to talk about as coming under conviction. So Paul has this moment where he meets the real risen reigning Lord on the road to Damascus and he's completely convicted. I wanna show you this. And if we go to Acts 26, verse 14, it'll be on the screen. We, we, we are told a part of this story that Paul tells us later that we don't get to see in Acts 9, but I want to show you this. Here's what happens. Look here. And when, he had fall, and when we had fallen to the ground, this is Paul talking about what happened to him. And when he says we, it's because there was guys traveling with him. We'll talk about them in a second. And, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, because God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. He spoke to me in my language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then look at this. He says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, what are the goads? The goads were really long pointed sticks that farmers would use to poke their oxen when they would be plowing the field. If they, if they stopped or they got distracted or they were lazy or they were going in the wrong direction, he, you would poke them or prod them with these goads and then they would go in the right direction. But every once in a while, you could imagine, an ox would get a little unhappy that he was getting poked. And so he would kick back and hurt himself even more. 
Now, I know what you're saying. This sounds a little bit offensive. Is God comparing us to oxen? And I agree, this is very offensive to oxen, okay? <laughs> because they have never sinned. Here's what, here's what God's saying. And I think this is really, really encouraging. He's saying that I was in, I, Paul, I have been at work in your life. And you know I've been at work in your life. And you've been trying to kick against it. Now, that's interesting because nobody who looked at Paul's life would have thought that. This is why I do not think that Paul's conversion is as sudden as we think. I, th I think the process started earlier. Why? I think there were at least two goads in Paul's life. The first was Jesus Christ himself. We don't know this for sure, but there's a very good, I'd say more than highly probable chance that Paul met Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Why do I say that? They're the, almost the exact same age. They were committed Jews, and all of the committed Jews went to the temple area on the holy days and Jesus had a time and a ministry uh, of popularity. And so the chance that during his ministry of popularity, they were both at the temple and Paul saw him is highly probable. So that's the first goat. The second goat though, and probably the more impactful one for him was Stephen. If you know Acts 7, the longest chapter in the book of Acts, Stephen preaches an unbelievable sermon on how Jesus Christ is the center of the Old Testament, which by the way is what Paul will spend the rest of his life talking about. So he hears, interesting, is good Bible preaching a goad in a person's mind that's Christ-centered? Yes. And then he sees Stephen suffer and die well. Can watching a Christian suffer be a goad in a person's life? How can they do that? I couldn't do that if I was going through cancer. How do they still have hope? Then he watches Stephen forgive his enemies. Goad. And then he watches Stephen pray to Jesus as he dies. Here's the thing, guys. We don't know how God's using you or will use you in the life of your one. Because you don't see, only God sees the goads. It's how the Holy Spirit is using something in that one person's life that's in your life. For example, I don't know, say you invite someone to church, right? And the experience that you have of inviting someone to church, you do it and they go, nah, I'm not interested. Thanks for the invite, not gonna come. And you know, they leave and you go, you get in your car and you go, that was so embarrassing. I feel like an idiot. I was just rejected. And what you don't realize is they got in their car and they thought, I probably need to go. And my mom has been telling me for a long time I should get back in church and I've, maybe this is a sign. No, it's not. And they go on, goad. You, you, you go to somebody, you decide, you know, I'm gonna take a step and I'm gonna share something that's on my heart toward them or I'm gonna share my story with them and you share it with them and they seem kind of disinterested and you're like, oh, dude, I feel like an idiot. What you don't know is you, don't, you have no idea how God's using that in their mind and heart. You don't know if they go home and they tell their spouse about it. They go, this is, you don't know if they wake up thinking about it. We have no idea. God's working through goads in a million different ways in people's lives. That's what's happening in Paul's life. Look here. It says this. So let's go to verse 10. And I, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in Acts 22, verse 10. I'm gonna go to one more place to show you something. This is the other place. I'm, I'm putting the whole story together for us. In Acts 22, verse 10, it'll be on the screen. It says this, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? So he tells us, that we don't get this question in Acts 9. We get this question in Acts 22. Paul asked two questions. Who are you and what should I do, Lord? And look what he says. And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. That's the exact same thing he says in verse six here. Look, but rise and enter the city, chapter nine, verse six, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, Okay, this is interesting. If you, unfortunately, we all know this story, but if you think about it, he's saying, okay, I spoke to you. I gave you the audible voice. Now go to Damascus and you'll be told what to do. And so you think, okay, I, I know what's gonna happen. He's gonna go to Damascus and then God's gonna re-show up and talk to him. That's not what happens. You go, okay, I know what he's gonna do. He's gonna go to Damascus and this is what God loves to do. God's gonna send an angel. That's not what God does. This is the whole point of this whole series. God always decides to send a person to reach another person. God uses saved people to save people. I'll show you. We're gonna get there in a minute, but first look at verse seven. The men who were traveling with him, who we also found out they fell to the ground, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Here's what I think is the point of this. There can be people who are in church and who are around the things of God and who hear the gospel and they can respond. Two people can be sitting right next to each other and one can be totally trusting Christ converted, born again, and the other person can be feeling 
nothing. Like every time our church gathers, like right now, I always know there's two groups of people in here. There's the converted, they're born again, their mind, heart, and will is the Lord's, their life has been transformed, and then there's the crowd. And you can't see the difference as you look around like this. That's why theologians have talked about the visible church, that's what we're seeing right now, and the invisible church is the true church that's in here that we can't see. And so the travelers, they, they represent the crowd. Look at what happens in verse eight. But Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. What's that about? So now he's blind for three days, and he doesn't eat and drink for three days? I mean, most of us have not had three waking hours in which we haven't had something to eat or drink. He goes three days. I think there's a couple things about this. First of all, when you meet Jesus Christ, it wrecks you and changes you. Look, if I, if I got up here this morning and I said, guys, hey, listen, it's been a crazy morning. The craziest thing happened to me as I was getting ready this morning, I was walking across the street and this massive 18-wheeler truck hit me going 60 miles an hour. If I told you that, you would be like, you wouldn't be concerned. And the reason you wouldn't be concerned is you wouldn't believe me. And the reason you wouldn't believe me, hear this, is because somebody who had that experience doesn't look like me. If you've met the risen, reigning Jesus of Scripture, it's going to change and transform who you are. And here's, for a lot of people, conversion is very, very painful. <laughs> for Paul, it was painful physically. For a lot of people, it's painful. And the reason that it's painful is, well, everything that you believe at the deepest levels has to change. Like, I remember when I was doing ministry at Duke, I've told you guys some of these stories before, but my pastor at the time, and, and this is not hyperbole, really, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, there's almost no Christians at Duke. I mean, think almost none. And, um, and I remember I was talking, to my, and my pastor at the time, he was trying to encourage me in college ministry, and he said, Kyle, here's what I want you to know. When you go in there and you talk to these Duke students, you are messing, and you share the gospel with them, you are messing with everything they love and everything they value and everything they're pursuing and everything their parents ever taught them, and everything that's being reinforced in the classroom. When you step on with the gospel in their life, you are messing with all of that. And so I think Paul needed time to process. Like, I mean, think about Paul, right? I don't know this for sure. I'm imagining with you. And this is always a good thing to do is read the scriptures. Imagine a little bit. It's like, Paul's blind, and he's, we're going to see in a moment, he's praying. He's probably thinking, I guess I'm not a Pharisee anymore. I guess I'm not going back to Caiaphas. I think I need a new set of friends. I guess I was wrong about Jesus. How am I gonna tell my family? So he has to process all of this. And then look what happens in verse 10. Here it is. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, I love this. That's the Isaiah 6 response. Here I am, Lord. Why does God use Ananias? This is a question that commentators try to answer. Like, why Ananias? We never hear about this guy again. This is not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira. That guy's dead already. This is a different Ananias. Like, we never hear about him again after this. And most people don't think he's a church leader. It's like, he's just a Christian in a city. It's like, why did God use Ananias? I think there's two reasons. One is he was available, right? Here I am, Lord. God cares more about, this is not just a saying, this is true. God cares way more about your availability than your ability. But actually, the, the other reason I think that he uses Ananias is I think Ananias was the closest Christian to where Paul was. That's why he can go. You'll see this in a minute. He's going to go, go down Straight Street and go to that Judas's house. That's where he's at. It's like, that's not a lot of directions. That means I live very close. It's like, it matters who you know and who you're around, and those are the people that you're responsible for. You're not responsible for people in Africa, you know, to lead them to Christ. Maybe as a church, we'll send a missionary or a team there. You're responsible for the people that you're closest to locationally or relationally. Location is like, I mean, who else is going to reach your neighbors? Is it an accident that you're there? That you're, who else is going to reach your coworkers? It's like, you're their, you're their coworker, you know? But then there's also, there's relational. You might be like, well, who else is going to reach your son? You, you might be like, well, he lives in New Mexico. Though. You're right. Locationally, you're not close. Relationally, you're super close. So he uses Ananias. Look what Ananias says here. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. So here's, if it hasn't been clear to you, the whole point of this message and this series is to say, let's be like Ananias. But let's, let's see what Ananias does. Here's what Ananias does. He says, here I am, my Lord, I'd like to be used by you. And then God says, great, 
there's somebody that I'd really like you to reach. His name's Saul. So what does God do? God puts someone on our heart, and he gives us his word, which we have the written down word of God of how to reach them, and we know how to reach people. You share the gospel with them. You share your testimony with them. You, you introduce them to the scriptures. You know what? We know all that. That's all in the Bible. But what I love about Ananias is what happens next. So here's what happens. Look, it says, for behold, he is praying. Paul's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So I want you to see, I love how honest the Bible is. This is what happens to us. Hopefully you're going to make a commitment and you already have in your heart or you'll do it at the end of service. Lord, I'd like to reach one person. And God says, okay, great. Then this is the one person I want you to reach and this is how I want you to do it. And then what I love is the Bible says, this is what you're going to do next when God puts that on your heart. You're going to say all the reasons that you can't reach that person. You're going to bring up all your excuses, right? This is what we do. I, I love it because we've got to be honest with Ananias. I mean, we've got to give him some credit here. I mean, because it's going to be scary to go after Paul, Saul, from what he heard. It'd be like, it'd be like you know, you're in some high school and some college, and it's like, hey, and God you know, gives you a dream and vision and says, hey, you know the head of the atheist group on your campus, the guy who's really passionate about his atheism? I want you to reach him. You're like, God, I, I don't think he's interested, you know? <laughs> He's kind of building a whole platform on not being interested in you and not believing in you. Um, or, you know, you're in North Korea and God says, I want you to share the gospel with Kim Jong-un. And you're like, if I do that, we'll be having this conversation face-to-face, you know, because <laughs> it's not going to go well for me. Here's the honest truth, guys. God's going to put somebody on your heart, your dad or some friend, and then you're going to think of all the reasons that they're not interested and they're not the right person and they're never going to believe. And you forget the whole point of this passage. God can save anybody and everybody needs Jesus. What are our excuses? I think our, our two excuses, the first one is we don't think they're interested. Here's, we say no for people. Like I, evangelism is not sales. Okay? They're very different. But, I, but the, let me just make one connection. The number one, I've got a couple friends in sales. I mean, the number one rule in sales is like, you do not say no for people. Like, you will not be a good salesman at anything. If you, oh, they won't want to buy. They don't need a car. They're not, it's like, you don't say no for people. It's like, well, I'm, could I encourage you, let that be the number one rule in evangelism. We're not doing sales. We're, we don't believe it. We can force faith. We want to tell people about Jesus, and we are committing, I, I am not going to say no for this person. If they say no, that's fine. I am not saying no for them. The second reason that we don't share is we're afraid of the social implications. It's just, and we're not afraid that we're going to go to jail. And now I want to be careful because I realize the work environment is getting crazy in HR departments and all that kind of stuff. I know all that. So you got to be careful. Why is a serpent innocent as a dove? But in most situations, what we're really worried about is it's going to be a little awkward and there's going to be a little bit of a relational or social implication. We don't fear the raised fist. We fear the raised eyebrow. Okay, That's what we fear. And here's what I want to encourage you. We're going to look at what what Ananias does in a second. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you, and I'm going to try to do the same thing, to be foolish for Christ. Could you do something foolish that looks foolish to the world but is wise in God's eyes? Because I think if you want more spiritual power in your life, and I think you'll know this this is true if you know the Scripture, if you want more power, you're going to need to be able to look a little be willing to look a little bit more foolish. It's like, well, I'm going to go up, and I'm, I feel like God's put this person on my heart, and I'm going to say something to them. Like, I, I, I feel like that person is going through something, and I'm going to do something really foolish. I'm going to ask if I could pray for them. I'm going to feel really like a fool to say that. I'm going to do something really foolish, and I'm going to tell them what, what God's doing in my life, and I know it's going to make no sense to them. It's like, what would it look like if you were willing to do something foolish and actually believe the Bible says it's through the foolishness of preaching that God saves people. It's like, we're gonna get up here and talk about Jesus and how he lived and died and rose from the dead. And people, most people aren't gonna believe, but it's gonna be some people are gonna believe through the foolishness of preaching. Well, I wanna show you what happens with Ananias. Look here. In verse 15, So I think this is how it works. And I want you to think about this as maybe a paradigm to help all of us because I really want us to grow in this. 
first and foremost myself. God puts someone on our heart. We tell God all the reasons that we can't. We pray to God and we tell God all the reasons that it won't work. And then here's what God says. But the Lord said to him, go. That's it. Actually, the rest of what he says to him is just how he's going to use Paul. He has one word. It's two letters. It's one syllable. It's go. I think God would say, you go to God, and, you, and honestly, you should. All right, God, I want to reach my sister. And then you start thinking about it, and you go, well, actually, she's living, she's cohabitating with this guy, and we don't have the best relationship, and, and you, I don't know, you go into all that, and God, I think God would say, I, I'm so grateful for you sharing all that. We can continue to process that together in prayer. Go. It's this action-oriented, that the Great Commission is go into all the world. And it's like, I go, I take a risk, I enter the relationship, I have no no idea what's going to happen, and I'm willing to look foolish. See, here's the problem, and I had to settle this a long time ago. I know I'm not cool. I've never been cool. I never will be cool. But I, 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 I think I, I want to be thought of as like a normal person. Like, yeah, I'm a pastor. You know, people find that out. But I'm normal. And like, yeah, I'm a committed Christian. Like, I believe the Bible, and I, you know, I believe like in the historic Christian faith. But I'm normal. It's like, man, I think we're going to have to have some of this like, look, man, like, I'm not normal. I do some foolish things for Christ. And I think, they're, I think they're wise in God's eyes, but they're gonna look very, very foolish in your eyes and in the world's eyes until it's the power of God in someone's life. See, look, look at Paul. I'll show you something. In verse 15, it says this, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Here's the thing. He's gonna say, I'm gonna use Paul greatly in your life or in, in, in the life of other people. And we love verse 15, we don't love verse 16. Look at verse 15. Here's what he's gonna do. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Like, dude, that's awesome. That's the life I want. But then look what he says. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. They're connected. I, I, I think this is true from scripture and from church history and from personal experience that converts, people coming to Christ, people you lead to Christ, and hardship and persecution come into your life at the same measure. And so most of you, I'm guessing, would say, you know what? As a general rule for being a Christian, I have almost, or maybe I have 0% persecution in my life right now. And I would say, I would bet you have 0% converts. Do you know that 90, what is it? 92% of Christians in America say they have never shared the gospel with anyone outside of their family ever. And 95% of Christians say, I've never led one person to the Lord in my entire life. What does that mean? 5% of American Christians are doing all of the evangelizing. <sighs> Open doors and opposition grow at the same level. And the problem with us is you want Paul's legacy but you're not willing to live Paul's life. You want to die and go to heaven and get all the rewards that the apostle Paul will give. Why was Paul before kings? Because he was suffering. That's how he got in front of kings. Both are connected. So he says this to Ananias, and in a great encouragement, it says this. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, these are the first words Paul hears from another Christian, brother Paul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened and we never hear of Ananias again. Like, have you ever heard of Edward Kimball? Of course you haven't heard of Edward Kimball. No one knows who that is. Edward Kimball was D.L. Moody's Sunday school teacher. And D.L. Moody used to love, D.L. Moody is one of the most famous evangelists that America's ever seen. D.L. Moody started schools, all that kind of stuff. D.L. Moody used to love to tell the story of Edward Kimball. He would talk about, I was a small boy. I mean, th think about, thank you, those who serve in the kids' ministry. Edward Kimball, in a Sunday school class, noticed that D.L. Moody had some questions about the love of God. And Edward Kimball leads D.L. Moody to Christ. And we never hear of Edward Kimball again. Ananias goes off, and we are introduced to what Paul's life looks like now as a new believer. Look at verse 19. For some days, 
He was with the disciples at Damascus. So, okay, what is the reason that we know we need a local church? Because Paul needed a local church. If the apostle Paul needed a local church, you and I need a local church. And Paul doesn't immediately become this incredible apostle who ends up writing scripture right away. In fact, Galatians tells us he spent three years in Arabia and there's a lot of other things. The first thing Paul needed to do was be part of a meaningful Christian community and be discipled. Look here, it says this. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. So how do you know that you're really a believer? You start to care about the spiritual needs of other people. That's it. Like, look, everybody, and you don't have to be born again. You don't have to be a Christian to care about people's with, people with disabilities. You don't have to be a Christian to care about food insecurity in our city. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to care about homelessness and poverty. I mean, you, you could be an atheist and care about those things. But you know you're a Christian when you care about the spiritual needs of others. I remember being in Spanish three class, brand new believer, looking around the classroom going, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell in this room? It's like, I had never had that thought for 16 years of my life. And I started to care about the spiritual needs of others. Well, that's what Paul does. But then look what happens. And all, not just some, and all who heard him were amazed. And they said, wait a second. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for the purpose, for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? When a person comes to Christ, those around him notice. Those around her notice. Tim, the late, great Tim Keller, who... Um, pastored in New York City for like 30 years. He had all these great observations. They had a very fruitful evangelistic church in New York City. And what he found, and I think this is true, is he said the most evangelistically fruitful time in a person's life is the first two years that they believe. And he said, here's why. And think about this, it makes sense. Because that means that everybody who was in their life saw them become a Christian. See, the problem is that when somebody meets you, if they've never met you before and they just meet you and you've been a Christian for several years, they meet you and they're like, well, you've always been this way. I bet you grew up in like one of those religious homes and actually you're probably kind of naive or maybe you have a temperament or personality to just be a religious person, so good for you. When somebody sees their freshman roommate come to Christ at the end of the first semester, it's like, what happened to you? You are a different person. And then the reason that the first two years a person becomes a Christian is they're most fruitful is they still have all of their non-Christian relationships. They haven't fully made the jump to where the, the church is, you know, because as you're a Christian longer, you tend to have more Christian relationships than non-Christian relationships. It's just how it works a lot of times. And so here, why am I telling you that? Because what happens, guys, is when you start reaching new people for Jesus, there's a flywheel effect. Because other people see their lives changed and then they come and they, because they, part of them are going, man, maybe, maybe life change really is possible. I've seen my friend's life change. Maybe this could change my life. Guys, this story is to remind us that God can save anybody and everybody needs Jesus. And Paul is a reminder that you cannot be too bad or too broken to come to Christ. Uh, it, Jesus does not care what you're addicted to, you can come to Christ. Jesus does not care what you've done, you can come to Christ. Jesus does not care what you have believed in the past or what your family was like. I mean, he cares about all those things, but I'm saying he doesn't want any of those things to hinder you from coming to Christ. The way you come to Christ, if it hasn't been clear, is the, you respond the same way, the exact same way that Paul did. I know his conversion was dramatic, but what wasn't dramatic was the two questions he asked. Who are you, Lord? You know, I used to say to Duke students when I'd speak to fraternities and stuff, I used to say to them, hey guys, you know Jesus Christ is worshiped by a billion people on earth? He might be worth four hours of your consideration over the next four weeks. It's like, yeah, maybe that's the first question. Who is this man who walks across history and scripture, who's worshiped by a billion people on earth, who is undoubtedly the most famous person who's ever lived? Who are you, Lord? And then the second question is, what do you want me to do? And I believe Jesus will answer the first, first question. I'm the risen Lord. And the second question is, repent and believe. Trust me and follow me. Guys, what we're hoping here is to have the spirit of Ananias. The spirit of Ananias is a spirit that prays and says, God, what do you want me to do? And then listens to the voice of God and goes. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was at a church this week um, and this church is just doing incredible things. We always try to learn from other churches that are just ahead of us. And this church is just, they're reaching tons of adults who were far from Christ and, and they're, they're baptizing them. And we're talking about legacies and lineages changed. And I got some time with the senior pastor and I'm just trying to figure out, dude, what is it? Like, wh what are y'all doing? Like, wh how? And he said, we have a motto in our church. 
He said, here's our motto, pray, guess, go. He said, that's how we run everything. We pray about it. Lord, what do you want me to do? And then we guess. It's like, all right, I don't know. There's 10 ways to reach my brother. There's seven different ways I could do this. I could write a letter. I could call. I could knock on the door. I could invite them over. I'm going to pray. I'm going to guess. And then I'm going to go. I'm going to do something about it. We are hoping for that spirit in our church. If you remember only three words from today, I pray you will remember pray, guess, go. I want us to have the heart of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor who reached a ton of people in London. He led the first mega church in the history of the world. And he, he wrote this, oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they, if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. That's our heart, guys. When I think about what God allowed me to do 15 years ago, lead Brian to Christ, that video that we saw at the beginning, I thought about, you know, I could have never led Brian to Christ if I wasn't somebody's one. I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird thought. Like, I, I just, it's, this is not about me at all. It's like, th- this church wouldn't be here if someone didn't reach me. I'm sure someone else would have planted another church. And I'm saying, this church would not exist if, if this guy didn't reach me. And the guy that reached, reached me was a guy named Joe Dutko. He was 17 years old. I was 16 years old. We were in public school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And when I found out that we were gonna show this video about Brian, I thought, you know what, wouldn't it be really neat? Let me text him. I've not talked to him in like 10 years. He's a pastor in Vancouver, Canada. I'm like, I'm gonna just text Joe and see if he'd send a video and just tell the story from his perspective of meeting me and reaching me, you know, 22 years ago. And so I've got the video for you. I'm gonna pray. And then I'm I'm gonna pray that you will pray, you will guess, and you will go. And we will be on this journey of repentance together. Let's pray. Lord, that's our heart. We wanna pray, guess, and go. When it comes to how do we reach our kids, pray, guess, go. When it comes to how do we reach a prodigal, pray, guess, go. When it comes to what do we do with a complex work environment, pray, guess, go. Lord, would you give us the spirit of Ananias? We wanna process with you our fears and our anxieties about reaching our one. And then we wanna hear you lovingly but loudly saying, go. I'm gonna be with you. Don't say no for them. You have no idea the goads I've put in their life and the way I'm working in their life. And I want you to have a front row seat at what I'm doing. Lord, that's, Lord, we just thank you. The reason you do this, that you work through us is not because it's easier and more efficient, but because you love to do things with your kids because you're a good father. May we get to know you more deeply as we reach out to our friends and our family. We pray this in Christ's name.